Good morning. Do a couple of announcements uh, right here. Uh, evening services for now is still on for tonight. Please bring drinks and a dish to pass. Uh, we've got a couple of updates coming for uh, members that are going to be going under the knife. First of all, uh, our brother Dale, I understand, had his surgery moved up to, what, 7.30 tomorrow morning. So if we can be mindful in that, uh, when we first arise, uh, hold him up in prayer. And, uh, put it in God's hands. I talked to Ken this morning about Della, and, and uh, Ken, if you would, would you uh, address the congregation, let them know what's going on? You're also going to have your arteries checked, your carotids in your neck? Yeah, they're going to try to see, they're tr trying to come up with a good reason why I'm conking out of um, and, uh, Well, he's going to start there because he said these arteries are pretty vital in there. They can do a lot of different things. So we, they're going to check them first. Reminds me of the analogy of an automobile. The thing conks out when you either don't have fuel yeah, or spark. And they say that's the hardest thing to detect there is, is why people conk out. They just, every time they, they come up, every time I've done it, they come up with a reason, but they're all different. Well, that's why they call it the practice of medicine. <laughs> I don't think they ever get it completely right. So, but that's just my opinion. Terry, you had an update on on uh, Tom Roth uh, uh, last Wednesday. Uh, I think everybody knows it. Uh, when I called him, he said, uh, when I asked him if he was okay, he said, yeah, what's new? Well, he just was very vague about, you know, he's okay. He's doing okay. He's has Joshua's living there, so it makes me feel a little bit better. But sure. He was just non-committal on how he was feeling. Okay. Well, again, Tom's always been an introverted type. Uh, he's kind of kept to himself most of his life, and he hasn't changed much. So, need to hold him up in prayer as well. 
Any other prayer requests or notes of information? Ken, yes? My brother Gary has a problem. He's the one that comes up here in the States. He has a tumor in his, just below his ear and his neck here. And, um, well, last week they, he had to go to the doctor and they took, they, they biopsied it and he won't know nothing until tomorrow. But whatever they come up with out of them biop, the doctor said the tumor has to come out regardless of what they come up with. Is, is that on a pituitary gland? Uh, most most pituitaries, I understand, are up in the, the jaw, <coughs> neck. He areas. was having problems in it. And while well, he went to get checked or to find out why, well, they found this tumor. And uh, they biopsied it. And then, well, the doctor said, regardless of what it is, it's got because it, it just will keep growing. Well, let's let's add Gary to the to the prayer chain and prayer list as well. He but, was uh, supposed to be here next month. <coughs> I guess that's my <coughs> up in the air. Okay. Now yeah. keep Ken's brother Gary in, in much prayer for that. So. Yeah. Yes. Ed had surgery tonight too. Ed. Yeah. Ed, you're having cataract surgery tomorrow. Yes. When is that going to take place? Uh, nine. 9.15. Boy, there's a lot going on. A lot going on in our, in our small congregation, isn't there? So much to pray about. Any other comments or uh, prayer requests? Uh, do we need uh, any updates other than what we just been told? Okay. Scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 6, and that'll be uh, verses 35 through 51. You'll find that in page 1657 in your pew Bible.
stand with us as we begin our morning worship with prayer. Brother Ed Riffle, would you kindly lead us in opening prayer?
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, page 1819 in our pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Ephesians 6 to 14, I think. Or, yeah, I'm going to start at 6. It, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you were you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, the, the done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that that time, at, no, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Ask that the Lord would bless his word. We take your brown hymnals this time and turn to number 355, 355 in the brown.
The scripture lesson this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1. In our last study, we began a new series entitled The Living Faith, which will deal primarily with what it means to live by faith in the sense of trust, trust in the Son of God. From the parable of the talents, we discovered that upon Christ's ascension, he distributed the resources of his estate to his servants as a steward or a trusteeship for which they were responsible. The wealth was his, the management was theirs. Two of the servants did well. They put the master's money to work, and they earned interest in his holdings, on his holdings. One servant, in fear, he had no love for the master, buried his talent in the ground where it accumulated zero, nothing. Christ called him wicked. He called him lazy. And in the end, he was expelled from the estate and cast out into outer darkness. His problem was no faith in the master. And we as his people, the people of Christ, are called to a stewardship from God which can be managed only by faith in God. This faith is characterized by, and we listed them, loyalty to Christ as our one and only master. Number two, placing the master's interests foremost above our own. And number three, the belief that the master 
will return. So we want desperately to hear the master's approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. True faith in Christ will have something to show him in the day of accounting that proves that we have been a contributing member to his kingdom. The wayward servant had none of these traits because instead of faith, he had fear. Instead of love, he despised the master. Luke's account says, let me read it for you, his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. You'll find that in Luke 19, verse 14. Well, today I want to look at the spiritual deposits necessary for a person to trust in God. Because it isn't natural that we trust him. It's unnatural that we trust anybody. But we should trust the creator, the God of the universe, who has spoken it's not left us in the dark. He's given us the truth. We don't trust him either because of our sin. So in coming to a today's study, let us ask the Lord's for enablement. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious to us that we have a copy of it. There are still today many nations, they've never seen a Bible, not a Bible in their lifetime not in the generations of their grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. They've never seen a Bible. That means they've never heard a word from God. They've been left to their idolatry, to their own devices. And Lord, that is your marvel. We are, see the incumbency upon us to be about the work of missions, that people would hear, that they would receive a Bible, that they would learn the truth. But having said that, we also praise you for America, that it was founded upon Christian principles. The pilgrims brought the scriptures with them, and we are benefited by it. Bless us this morning as we come, realizing that we need fed by the word of God. Do this for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. We're talking today about the deposits for trusting God. Say, what about, what's, what are you talking about? What's the need for deposits? Well, when I was a kid, I used to watch as my parents would go to the bank to withdraw money from their savings accounts to pay off some large bill or to make a sizable purchase. And I thought, this is really cool. This is really cool. You go to a stand-up desk, you fill out a piece of paper, you take it to the teller window, and the teller gives you whatever amount of money you wrote on the paper. How cool is that? I 
I would also see my mother sit down at the table at home. She would pull out her checkbook, and for the next hour, she would write uh, amounts of money on each check, one for the electric bill, one for the gas bill, one for Sears and Roebuck. She would then seal them in a separate envelope to be mailed the next morning. Well, I took about all of this that I could stand. So the time came and I said, Mom, I can't wait till I grow up. And she said, why is that, Freddie? Moms always use the I-E on the end of names. Tommy, Jimmy, Freddie. Why is that, Freddie? Well, I answered, when I'm grown up, I get to draw money from the bank and write checks for things that I want. Mom laughed so hard I thought she was going to break a spleen. <laughs> and then she corrected my naivete by saying, Freddie, you have to put money into the bank before you can draw it out. What? <laughs> Are you serious? Not cool at all. What a burst to my dream of becoming rich. What kind of system is that? You have to contribute before you can take out? You have to give up before you can withdraw? Who invented banking anyway? Well, it didn't take me very long to figure out that the bankers are simply giving back my own money. What kind, of, what kind of deal is that? Well, um, no deal at all. Just a convenience so I can send paper transfers safely through the mail. Same holds true in the spiritual realm. There is no withdrawal unless there is first a deposit. You can't take from God what he doesn't give. You can't manage what he doesn't deposit. You can't spend what you do not have credited to your account. This makes us very beholding to God, doesn't it? It is a position many find very uncomfortable in our self-sufficient, I don't need you, I don't need anyone's help. Our age is what that is like. And people bristle at the idea that heaven is God's to give instead of theirs to earn. Suddenly, we don't mind so much the banking system that says, you put in first, and then you may withdraw. 
But for God to come along and say, you may withdraw only what I put in and only under my enablement makes us feel rather helpless, insignificant, and very, very dependent and out of control. But may I say that this is exactly the way God's spiritual bank and trust functions. There is no saving trust in God for sinners unless he grants the enablement. God must deposit what he wants drawn out. Now there are two essential spiritual deposits that God makes for his people. Number one, the deposit of death to self. Death to self. Before anyone can have saving faith in Christ, they must die to self. Paul said it best when he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Could be argued that as we are born into this world, we come already spiritually dead. After all, just look at the next chapter in Ephesians here. Chapter 2 verse 1, what does it say? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. God is stating through his apostle that we were born into this world dead towards God. That is, chapter 2, verse 12, separate from Christ, without hope, and without God in this world. Ooh. This speaks of the estrangement, the hostility that exists between sinners and the sinless one. Between the one who always and ever obeyed the law of God and those who are always and ever transgressors of God's law. And such hostility towards the holy God and creator makes us his enemies. I didn't say it. God said it. You can read it in Romans 5 verse 10. Bet you never thought of yourself as an enemy of God. Time to think about that. Enemies as surely as Adam and Eve went from obedient subjects to rebels in defiance of God's will. They switched allegiance to the serpent liar. So there is certainly the truth that as people born with Adam's fallen nature, we enter this world spiritually dead towards God. But this death is not the one I'm talking about today. I recognize that, but that's not what we're here to talk about. God had nothing to do with that death of soul. We did that to ourselves by our own sin. For the Bible assures us 
that the wages of our sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. And again, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3, verse 10. These are God's evaluation, not man's evaluation. So there's no argument. Rather, rather now, the kind of death that I refer to as a deposit from God is the death that comes to a person who is sick and tired of relying upon his or her, his or her own vitality and energy to appease and please God. People do a lot of living while they are dead in trespasses and sins. We have it in the text. I mean, Paul says that the Ephesian converts, chapter 2, verse 1, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you used to live. Oh, when you follow the ways of this world. So you see, they lived or they functioned as though God were irrelevant to their goals and their aspirations of life. They were dead while they lived. Yes, but functioning on their own with no thought of God, no doubts as to their own abilities, no questioning of their goals, no reliance upon anyone except their own wits to strive for and obtain whatever they deemed good and profitable, including heaven. This is certainly living in the ways of the world. But there are no kudos from God when we live this way. God knows that such living is an arrogant reliance on self. I can do this. I can do this. More, it is an exaltation and worship of self as wicked and as rebellious as Adam and Eve's transgression when Satan tempted them saying, you will not surely die if you eat the forbidden fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Genesis 3 verse 4. Like God? Oh, wow. Mortals becoming God. What a prospect. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, <clears throat> it was a prospect, all right. But, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> More than anything, it was a big lie. It was a big lie that Adam and Eve bought into, and it is the lie that governs our world today. The lie says that you are living just fine without God, or that you can please God in your own power, using your own energy, your own determinations, and your own willpower. 
This is the I'm okay, you're okay crowd. This is the it will all work out in the end dream. This is the if you think it, you can do it actualization visionaries. And men and women always revert to this idolatry of self even in attempts to please God. But you cannot please God with a good dose of I'm fine the way I am. You will never find God and his peace that way. Salvation will never become the prize of your own positive self-image or thinking. Instead, and this is important, God must deposit dead to self in your account. You must come to an end as the person that you are. You must be crucified with Christ, as was Paul. Which doesn't mean someone is going to nail you to a literal wooden cross. But it does mean that your old sinful habits and your ways of doing things on your own and in your own strength and for your own pleasure, all of that will have to die. God becomes the master, not you. God is enthroned. The idol God of your perceptions is dethroned. Consider Jesus' words about the seed. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life is going to lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servants also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. John 12, verse 24 and following. Our Lord was addressing the person who lives his life by his own wits, by his own know-how, with total disregard for God as Lord and Master. Such people think that heaven, that eternal life, is theirs for the winning. And they strive to win by outperforming their contemporaries. But Jesus was saying, no, you, wonderful you, has to fall and die. And as long as you love your sinful life the way it is and hang on to it, Eternal life will continue to elude you. Why? Because God did not send his son Jesus into this world 
so you could ignore him and bypass him as being irrelevant. Sin is not a little ripple in the pond. It is a torrential roaring stream that will take you into the precipice of hell. And you need a savior that can defend you and can save you. In a parallel text we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, verse 24. And Paul explains how being crucified with Christ works on a practical level. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will live, also live with him in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves to righteousness. And I put this in human terms, because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them to slavery, to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now shamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God and the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6 verse 6 and following. So one deposit God places in your account that enables you to trust God for your salvation is the deposit of death to self. Death to self. Being crucified with Christ to all the ways you thought and lived your life as a person of the world order. 
we move by God's grace from the used to to the but now, from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. There are no self-made people in heaven, only those crucified with Christ. Now, who can do this? Are you going to repent of your lifestyle on your own? Are you capable of giving up to death the very person that you are? The person you love, the person who is self-confident, the person who is independent and self-empowered. Not likely. And not ever. God deposits contrition and repentance in your soul account. That you might draw it out and trust solely in his grace to forgive you and change you. Repentance is not yours to bargain with God. It is not yours to command. It is, as Luke wrote in Acts 11, verse 18, to the amazement of the Jewish believers, he wrote, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. You know what a grant is? A grant is a gift. So if God granted the Gentiles repentance, he gifted them with repentance. Means they didn't produce it themselves. It was God drawing them to him. Secondly, not only does God deposit into our souls death to self, that we may trust God, but secondly... In order for faith in God to become a reality, he deposits spiritual life. Here again, death is addressed, but this time, the death of the soul as we are born sinners and God-haters in our world, dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 You ever wonder why some people are convicted by the gospel of Christ, by the account of his coming, his suffering, his dying for sinners, while others who sit in the same auditorium, listen to the same preacher, proclaim the same message, are never convicted of sin at all? Why is that? How come some hear and repent and trust Christ to forgive them their sin, while others, bearing, hearing the same message, remain undisturbed, unconvinced, unmoved, just as indifferent and self-satisfied as when they came in. Well, this is because just as death to self has to be deposited by God into their spiritual account before they can repent, so spiritual life has to be deposited before they can believe. 
Repentance is the gift of God, his deposit, and so is spiritual life that results in faith. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How does God do this? Paul told the church at Corinth, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. So very clearly, we are told here that the Holy Spirit himself is the deposit of God to believers' hearts. Same thing in our text, written to the Ephesian church. Verse 13 calls the Spirit the promised Holy Spirit. And verse 14 goes on to say, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Okay, what about an unbeliever's heart? Romans 8 contrasts the life of an unbeliever with the life of a believer in these words. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Okay, we got a dichotomy here. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Romans 8, 5 through 9. Wow, do you see how beholden we are to the Spirit of God? He must do his work for us to repent and believe the gospel that we have before us. So it's clear here that an unbeliever is characterized by these traits. And I think uh, Rachel had them printed on the back of the bulletin. Or we didn't make it, did we? Okay. Let me read them for you. I'll go slow. 
An unbeliever is characterized by these traits. Romans 8, verse 5 and following. So you at least write the text down because you can go back and check on. Number one, they're controlled by sin, the sinful nature, verse 9. Their desires are sinful, verse 5. The mind or thinking is death, verse 6. The mind is also hostile to God, verse 7. They are rebels against God's law, also, verse 7. They cannot please God, verse 8. Number 9, verse 9. Their mind does not belong to Christ. In, in verse 9 again, they will die in his or her sin, thus having no connection with the Savior. That's the unbeliever. I didn't say it. This is God's, these verses spell all this out. In contrast, the believer is characterized by these traits. Romans 8, verse 5 and following. The believer lives his or her life in accord with the Spirit, verse 5. Their mind is set on what the Spirit desires, also, verse 5. Their mind, that is controlled by the Spirit, Issues in a life of peace. Verse 6. They submit to God's law. The spirit is in control. Verse 9. Resulting in righteousness. Verse 10. Verse 11. Next, the Spirit is a permanent resident. He lives in the believer. Verse 9. None of this coming and going. By implication, they please God because they're living by His Spirit. Next, they become a son of God, able to address him as father. Verse 15. Next, they do belong to Christ. Verse 9. As the Savior and co-heir with them as brother. Christ our brother. Verse 17. Verse 17. And finally, they will experience resurrection power for the body, verse 11, and life eternal, verse 13, for all time. Now, as we look at these two lists, 
What is the one defining entity that is missing in the unbeliever but is present in the believer? Answer, the Holy Spirit or spiritual life. The absence of the Spirit explains every God-hating and wicked mindset against God in the list of the unbeliever, the first list. And conversely, the presence of the Spirit accounts for every God-honoring, God-pleasing, righteous behavior that we have in list number two for the believer. So, God has nothing to do with producing the behavior of people who are unbelievers, but he has everything to do with producing the behavior of people who are believers. Key question then becomes this. How does a person move from list number one to list number two? From having a mindset and behavior that hates God to a mindset and behavior that loves God. I mean, this is radical stuff. We're talking day versus night. We're talking death to life. Foe to friend. Enemy of God to son of God. Antichrist to brother of Christ. Whoa. The gospel message answers in the word of Jesus to Martha when he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. He'll rise again. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Life eternal. Martha, do you believe this? She affirmed that she did. But you see, that's the point. The faith must be there that Christ is all in all. And he's the one that brings us into a right relationship with God. Do you believe? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. In list 1 of the unbeliever, verse 8 says that he or she cannot please God. Why? No saving faith. What a dilemma. The bridge that crosses the precipice of hell and lands a person safe in heaven's shore is faith. But the unbeliever has no faith in God. His or her faith is in themselves. That is who they are. That is who they trust. What's the solution? Only one. Jesus said the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. And he went on to say, 
That is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6, verse 63. And God the Father so enables us by depositing his own life-giving spirit into the hearts of his people. What he deposits can be used. Crucified with Christ, the deposit of death to self through repentance. Alive in Christ, the deposit of the Holy Spirit who is life. Life-giving, producing the faith to please God by laying hold of Jesus. God deals with both. He deals with the sin question. He deals with where you're going to get life. That then is the important question. How do we trust Christ? How do we move from death to life? God commands all sinners to repent. In Athens, Paul admitted that there was a time in human history when, and I'll give it to you in Paul's words, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. What ignorance? Idolatry, self-worship, etc., in other words, in the past, judgment was suspended, Paul says. God put it on hold. He goes on to say, however, but now he, God, commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, verse 30. You say, well, oh, oh, then, if God commands it, I can do it. No, we're slipping back into that self-made religion again. Self-reliance, self-will, that is so much a part of our sinful world. God's commands to repent is not an appeal to your ability but to your responsibility. What do you mean? Well, it's right. It's proper. It's required of people who, like Adam and Eve, have rebelled against their Creator and Lord to turn from such rebellion and come back to God. It's their responsibility. But while you're accountable to do so, you can't do it. Oh, bummer. Repentance means renouncing your sin, giving up to God, seeking his forgiveness. You're never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. Though we should and we must if we're going to be saved. And if that were not bad enough, God also commands all who hear the gospel of Christ to believe in him as Savior. Jesus taught, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John 6, verse 29. The crowd then asked for a miracle to convince them that that's the way it should be. But Jesus, he had just fed them the day before. 
And so he responded, I, to I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. John 6, verse 36. Faith in God is not in them. They cannot do it, no matter how many miracles they see. Boy, our world is in a mess. Have you ever seen any of the evangelistic shows on TV? They're all into fake miracles because they think miracles will convince people about Jesus and they'll run to Jesus. No, they don't. They don't do that at all. Jesus was there in their presence. Jesus performed the miracles of the New Testament. And the people saw those miracles. And it didn't change their heart one whit. The message Jesus preached contained both commands. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. There you have it. Repent and believe. The good news. Mark 1 verse 15. But it is with all men. As it was with the Jews who asked Jesus to tell them outright if he were the Messiah. Why don't you just tell us if you're the Messiah? Here's Jesus' answer. I did tell you. I did tell you. But you do not believe. Because you're not my sheep. John 10, verse 25, 26. Churchmen of our day have reversed this truth saying, believe and you will become a sheep. Jesus taught those who are sheep, believe. Do you see how utterly crippling sin is? It bars the door to heaven so that none may enter and it paves the way to hell pulling all men to perdition. The sinful man or woman may be given the gospel and told what is necessary to do to be saved but they do not want to do and they cannot do. So how are people saved? God deposits in their hearts the repentance unto life, enabling them to seek God's forgiveness, and he deposits the spirit of life, enabling them to trust Jesus and only him for salvation. It isn't the natural faith, by the way, that all men have. You know, we've heard illustrations, well, 
you know, I have faith with it. when I sit down on my stool up here, it won't collapse and drop me on the floor. That's not faith, folks. That's experience. Because I've sat on this stool a hundred times and it's never dropped me on the floor. So it isn't the natural faith that a woman has, nor the regret people experience when they do something wrong. Rather, these deposits that God gives are part of God's estate, which he dispenses to his people. Remember the story of the talents and how the wicked servant who buried what his master had given him to, to use and among <clears throat> your numerous blessings may be the stewardship of saving faith and life-changing repentance. When I ask the question, what are you going to do with them? Bury them? That'll get you nowhere. Well, you say, how, how do I know if God has gifted me with these deposits? Faith, repentance, so on. Paul put it this way. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews 3, verse 7. He's saying, as God's fellow worker, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time for God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2. How do you know if God has deposited into your heart the repentance unto life and the spiritual life to believe? How do you know? You repent and you believe. You put into practice those things which God has implanted. And you don't put it off till tomorrow because today is your day of salvation. And if it is frightening and seemingly too hard to do, God has promised to hear your prayer of repentance and to help your unstable faith. None can trust God for daily living unless God first deposits what you need to draw out. Today, today, believe today to the praise of God. If he's working in your heart, if he's speaking in your heart, salvation is yours today. Today. Not tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon, alone, let alone tomorrow. And I wonder how many people just fritter away their day of grace. The gospel was preached. 
grace was explained. They heard the truth of Christ and his salvation at Calvary. And for a few seconds, for a few minutes maybe, even for an hour, they've thought about it and then just blew it away. You know how special it is for God to bring conviction to a sinner's heart? The world is full of sinners. Wow. There's more of them that are lost than there is of us who are saved. So the gospel comes by way of the word of God and the preaching of the word and so forth. And then the devil comes right in there and snatches the seed away before it has opportunity to take root. Jesus told a parable about that, remember? So the impetus is on the word today. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, repent. Today, become righteous in Christ and his work. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you will come today, I can promise on the authority of God's word, Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit will meet you today and bring you to a saving knowledge of him. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the fact that you um, you search us out. You even gave us a parable in the scripture about this. This shepherd had a bunch of sheep and one of the 99 sheep decided he or she was just going to do his own thing and took off for the hills decided he was going to loan it be a loner no concern with staying with the flock or staying heart to heart with the shepherd what did the shepherd do he left the ninety and nine And he went out into the wilderness and he found that rascal sheep. Put it over his neck and shoulders and carried that sheep back to the safety of home. Lord, that's what you do with us. We're sheep. If we belong to you or if we're going to belong to you, But sometimes, many times, we're rebellious. We say with the Jews, I will not have that man to rule over me. Referring to you. No, we're going to do our own thing. We know what's right. We know what's good for us. We know what feels good. And so on a fast gate, they run as fast as they can to get away from God. They run out into the wilderness. 
Like the prodigal son, they run to Nevada. They run to Sin City to indulge in all kinds of things that are hateful and despising of God's law. And they don't give a rip. But the Father who loves them runs after them to bring them home. And that's what our God has done if we're saved today. He's run after us, he's caught us, and he's brought us home. Lord, do that with someone today. They're running, running, running. They've been doing it a long time. This is their lifestyle. They don't want to get too close to God because they know he's going to require righteous living from them. They're going to be required to live a holy life. And they do not want to do that. But you want them to do that. Because apart from holiness, the scripture says, no one will see the Lord in peace. No one. Wow. Oh, we're all going to see the Lord. We must, we should want to see him in peace. How so? Because the scripture says, it's appointed unto men to die once, and after that, to face judgment. I don't want to face judgment. I want to face the Savior who died for me. And by your grace I shall, and by your grace any here can and will experience the same. Bless, O Lord, the truth of your word. Save whom you will, for your glory, their good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal, and it's 405, 405 in the hymnal. Will you stand with me when you find 405? Also, after service, Rachel um, printed out the back side of the bulletin that was supposed to be on there. don't know what happened, but it didn't print out, but Naomi will be up here handing them out as you leave. 
Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the sufficiency of Christ. As one of our other hymns just says, Jesus paid it all. This is not a partnership. We don't split the cost. We don't pay our part. Jesus pays his part. Our part is to die to sin and to have faith in the one who stepped in and paid for all of our sin. Every last sin. We're not partners in this. But we are recipients by your grace. And we thank you, dear Lord, for coming. We thank you for the cross. You came at a time in history when the world, still haters of God, had that cruel way of execution. But it was foretold in the Old Testament that that is how you would die. So even that cruel, cruel instrument of death was planned by you and you as the son of God came to pay the price who does that no one does that but you did it and as a result we have been made and declared righteous and our sins have been washed clean away and we thank you for that if there's one here today that doesn't know Christ I pray that you will draw them effectually into your kingdom grant them the repentance that they need to turn away from their sin grant them the faith that they need to run to Jesus run to Jesus and to Jesus alone to the praise and glory of your grace, we ask these things. Not everyone in the world gets to hear this message of grace and salvation. They don't even have a Bible. How blessed we are in America. Amen. We are dismissed tonight. Remember, we resume our study at 6.
school doing a go kart up music there. No, no. It's just the only days off I had this week was Monday, Wednesday, just Monday night. That's what I teach for. Especially with, with where I'm at in terms of my fatigue and how much energy I have, it just it crashes you. visit Marcy's, relative of Marcy's down there, and Paula from Texas is going to be there. And then she's going to take Kayla home to Graceland, because Kayla really wants to see Graceland. She's really into Elvis, which is um, weird for her age, but for this time. I think it's cool, but... Um, yeah, that's... I mean, I, I, I've been working nonstop. Um, I'm building shelves in a closet, and I've been going to bed pretty tired, but I'll take that over what you're doing any day. It's just at least I'm home, and it's, I enjoy what I'm doing, and it's not constant slogging. I mean, I, I like being busy, but that's... 